What I like about it is that there is a unique challenge to everyone. And every time a new proposal or request comes for uh, either information or, or design, it's, there's always something new. And there's always some sort of innovation that allows us to have this product step apart. In other words, you're not going to find these things through an internet search and find exactly what you want. So I think it's the innovative part of it. And it's also partnering up with other innovative companies and together supplying a system. This is DIV Innovators, the show that celebrates the brilliant minds behind the technology and innovations that keeps our country safe. Here's your host, Dave Graff, co-founder of Radical. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Charlie McCarrick, founder, president, and chief scientist of MicroAnt, a bespoke antenna design and manufacturer based out of Jacksonville, Florida. Charlie, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks a lot, Dave. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, you spent some time in Florida as well, I saw on your resume. I did, yes. A lot of time in the panhandle of Florida with the Air Force. So Panama City and uh, with Tyndall Air Force Base and then the Destin-Niceville area at Eglin Air Force Base. So really love our Florida roots. All right. Well, to kick things off, could you tell me more about your background and the work you do at MicroAnt? By profession, I'm an antenna designer, which means that I have an electrical engineering degree. I got both a master's and a PhD, and both of those I concentrated on antenna design and novel approaches to antenna simulation and numerical methods. So I've been doing antenna for a quite a while, about 35 years, and uh, the company that I founded, uh, MicroAnt, about 20 years ago, it stands for microwave antennas, meaning that we design antennas that operate primarily in the microwave spectrum, which is roughly uh, 500 megahertz up to 40 gigahertz. Awesome. Was this always a dream to start a company and pursue microant, or what took you to this initiative to found it? I think I always had the entrepreneurial bug in me and the itch, but I didn't really know how it was going to play itself out. Uh, as a kid, I would invent these different things that had absolutely nothing to do with engineering. And I had all kinds of different jobs in my life growing up. I wanted to be a rock star, you know, initially playing the drums. And you know, from there, I decided, you know, I was going to be a lumberjack and anything, it seemed, but uh, put on a suit and tie and go into an office and work according to a clock. But uh, eventually, I, uh, after working as a nurse for a number of years in a hospital in Boston, I uh, decided to go back to college and took up engineering because engineering is, after all, in my family. My dad was an engineer, three of my brothers or engineers. But uh, when I went back to school, I didn't know what kind of engineer I wanted to be. So it took a little bit of time for me to settle on antenna design. And all that happened was I was in a laboratory. I think it was uh, my second or third year. And there was this antenna sitting there. And I just was mesmerized by it. I just stared at this thing. And I knew enough about physics and microwave engineering to understand what was taking place on this incredible structure. And pardon the pun, but it resonated with me like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. I knew that that was going to be my destiny and eventually my, my passion. So I began antenna design at that point and uh, haven't looked back since. That's great to see an antenna and know that's your future. Well, you mentioned in there your brothers. Let's just, you know, segue a little bit. You know, you just recently wrote a book, you know, the things your brothers taught you. Why don't you, you know, share a little bit about what inspired that and, you know, what lessons you've learned? that you could apply, you know, you can apply to MicroAnt now. I'm going to hold up the book so you get the title right. Lessons My Brothers Taught Me. I, I grew up with four brothers and a sister. I was uh, next to the youngest. 
And when I say the lessons they taught me, it was really more or less their amusement by tying us up, putting us through different experiments and what have you. But having survived those, I realized that uh, there was a lesson involved in each one because the odds are always stacked uh, against you when you're dealing with older brothers, right? And when your parents aren't around and there's no supervision, the rules, <laughs> right? The rules aren't fair and they're not in your favor. So you have to maneuver yourself through those. And so in the book, what I do is I recount various episodes or the things that happened with my brothers, some of the hijinks that they put us through. And at the end, I have a, a little uh, moral, how that particular episode relates to some business tenant. And what I found is that in starting the business, especially dealing with large companies and our customers, vendors, competitors, you're a lot like big brothers. <laughs> yeah. And there is no supervision in your favor. There's The only fairness is within the character of the people that you're dealing with. So you have to, and if you want to sit at the big boy's table, you've got to be one of the, the big boys yourself. So I realized that I wasn't ready for any of that. I knew how to design antennas, but I was not ready to negotiate or to deal with the entities. Got through it a few times, but uh, eventually got through it and had some success. And I credit my brothers and some of the lessons that they taught me with uh, navigating through all of that. Yeah, that's great. I was the older brother, so I guess I was the uh, one invoking the uh, <laughs> the obstacles uh, for the sibling. All right. Well, you have the opportunity with antennas to work with our country, our defense industrial base, part of the supply chain. How do you like working You know, in that sector, in, in the div, we'll call it, for the rest of this? Well, I think what I like most is the what the I stands for, which is what innovation. And I love the, it's the defense and industrial board, but it's the innovative part. Base, yeah. It's the innovative part of it that really gets my juice flowing. We make antennas for every sector of business, commercial, industrial, as well as defense, and for a variety of platforms in aero, defense, you name it, ground, land, sea. What I like about it is that there is a unique challenge to everyone. And every time a new proposal or request comes for uh, either information or, or design, it's, there's always something new. And there's always some sort of innovation that allows us to have this product stuck apart. In other words, you're not going to find these things through an internet search and find exactly what you want. So I think it's the innovative part of it. And it's also partnering up with other innovative companies and together supplying a system. Let's face it, the Department of Defense is always on the edge of cutting technology because they have to be ahead of what everybody else is doing. And a lot of times, things that get commercialized begin in that sector. So I think in a, in a single word, the innovative part of it, the challenges, the difficulties, that they present to us and the ability to be able to execute and meet and sometimes, many times, exceed what their expectations were of us. You find that the innovation happens more on the commercial side for, you know, what you're in your space antennas or more on the defense side? Really good question. On the defense side, a lot of times these uh, products are being sold into a program of record and the program of record might go on for a number of years. And then over the course of that year, that term, there's a lot of innovation that's taking place, yet the defense is still buying these products that are three, four years old, and they're not taking advantage of these new technologies. So when it comes around to bid again, the incumbent can find themselves in trouble if they don't have the, the newest and innovative technology ready to plug in. So I think that the innovation is available to the Department of Defense, but I think that commercial, I'm seeing probably more of the, the commercial and the satellite operators themselves that are sponsoring the more innovative things. And they don't always get to the Department of Defense first. So 
it's half and half. Some of the some of the innovative stuff I see coming out of the Department of Defense, but some other innovative type things you know, come out of the commercialization. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of talk of the acquisition challenges and the div and how do you drive that innovation with the way you have program directors and contracts develop. So is that the most challenging thing working with the div or what would be that most challenging thing working with the government or large suppliers in that space? That is challenging for us because we're a component supplier. We don't supply the entire terminal. So our end customer is not the Department of Defense. It's usually a contractor between us and the end user. Now, there are some branches of the military that we sell direct to, but those tend to be very innovative, but they're very short life cycle and the quantities are low. So if we want to get our particular product in and we know it's innovative and we know that the competitors are inferior to ours, there is no way of communicating that to the end user. Like they're going to talk to our prime and the prime that we've partnered up with more often than not, they're less interested in innovation than they are in rocking the boat. They want to keep the legacy thing going. If it's don't stop broken, don't fix it. And the last thing they want to do is tell the end users that, hey, there's some better things out now and uh, what we sold you before isn't as good. You know, and you might consider replacing that. So nobody wants to have that conversation. So. I would say that the dip, yeah, so there is that, that we don't have a, a direct connection with the end user that did, but we're subject to whatever restraints that the prime that we parted up with, whatever the decisions they want to make. And then the way I can't blame them, because if you want to get some sort of an approval, the CA approval, Ostrad approval, whatever, this is a long, arduous process. You have to supply a lot of data. And a lot of going back and forth and it's like getting something patented you get it rejected three or four times and you know they really haven't looked at it so you know there's a lot of that red tape and paperwork that's quick it's, it's unnecessary and it delays and it hurts innovation but those are the things that are the most challenging to us not the innovative part not creating something that's unique or something that would be of enormous value to the end user but getting through all of the red tape paperwork and the relationships yeah that is tough totally agree with my time that I'd spent at Lockheed and the Skunk Works, yeah. innovation is coming from these small businesses, you know, like yours, you know, small, medium-sized businesses. So how, in you know, developing these new innovative thoughts, how do you think about security and maintaining security standards where the DIB is not necessarily paying you to do that? You know, they're trying to, you know, they just want their you know, component at the best price, at the best capability. How do you secure yourself in that space? How do you look at security? The security and security, right? And I'll tell you first about the security that we are most concerned with. First of all, we don't take on jobs that uh, require any kind of a clearance. We don't need to do that. That's absorbed by our prime. We're providing something that certainly makes the system work, but we don't have to be put under ITAR compliance scrutiny or any of those things. And these are passive devices besides. What we keep secure is, first of all, who the user is, who the prime is, unless that's something we're able to disclose, what the operation has specifically what we call the source control document, that which gives you all of the performance parameters of the device that we're selling. Those tend to be kept secret. And so we have a documentation protocol that we have implemented at the company. But the security that we're most involved with is theft, theft of intellectual property. And we get visited by the FBI from time to time, and it goes in, uh, you know, cyclic. Sometimes we'll have a lot of visits from them, and what, what they'll tell us is that our name, the name of the company, is being mentioned on 
on, on chatter that they're picking up some communications. I don't have to tell you who the source of those communications are. So they want to alert us to that. And so when we go to trade shows and what have you, they want us to be very careful who we talk to, and we have to uh, take down the names of who we talk to. But again, I'm going to go back to intellectual property theft is our biggest concern, and it is not China, it's not Europe. These are American companies that the concern us the most, and this isn't, I would say, paranoia. We've actually had prime contractors steal all the intellectual property straight out, and knowing that they did so. At the big brother, right? Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, but that, I mean, that is important. That's the lifeblood. So what advice, I mean, you've been at this for a while, 20 plus years at microhand. What advice would you give entrepreneurs who would like to be innovative and start working within the defense supply chain? Process and planning, those things are critical because the one thing that you need to be able to do is to have a process in place that gives you reliable, consistent product. It's okay to innovate. I mean, you, you and I could sit down and innovate come up with a hundred ideas, but only one of them is going to be able to make it through the process chain to become a successful product. So what I mean by that is even if you're a small company and you can't afford a quality department, you should at the very least understand what quality metrics are, especially if you're uh, in any kind of a technical role or leadership role executive officer role, even at the early stages, because quality is more than anything else is the thing that sets the character, the tone, and I think the eventual success of the business. It's the thing that uh, will drive culture. It uh, Quality is also uh, establishes the metrics that tells you whether or not what you're doing is compliant and meeting the needs of the customer. And of course, you know, quality is the one that establishes the various plans and processes that you have in place so that you have consistency. And so you don't have to rely on any one particular individual who with a skill, but rather you have a team that you can plug and play and move these people around because they're following a plan. So I think planning and process is key. On the innovative side, I'd say, you know, good ideas are good ideas, but you know, talk is cheap. Being able to implement, bring them into reality is the key. I didn't appreciate that at the beginning. Because I didn't appreciate that, I lost a lot of ideas and intellectual property. I wasn't able to capitalize on a lot of these things and couldn't uh, commercialize on some things that really you know, on the edge of being disruptive technologies. But what I learned is that uh, my now partner, Jim, had taught me is that you don't ever, ever, ever give your intellectual property away. You don't sell it. You don't rent it. You don't lease it. You own it. That's it. And you make sure with any contract that you put out there, that those are your terms. Now, you're going to have customers come to you and they're going to say, well, look, you know, it's our policy. We own the intellectual property. I had to learn to say, okay, sorry, you know, go buy it from the other guy. But invariably, they will realize that it is more important that they have use of the intellectual property than they have ownership of it. Because in the end, ownership doesn't necessarily mean control. And I'm the living proof of that because I, you know, in spite of these contracts that I've had with these private contractors, they still take the intellectual property, which is a unfortunate thing. So my message to the entrepreneur, the person starting a business is know who you're dealing with. These are people. Maybe behind, there's a large company behind them, but the people assess their character. Make sure you have terms in there that are simple, a single page if possible, easy to understand that give you the ownership and the rights to the intellectual property. And again, that you have a quality control system that maintains the documentation, the planning, the processes, and all the metrics that involve with taking innovation and translating it into a final product. Did you from that, you know, 
quality and planning and process. Was that something you developed after you started MicroAnt, or is this something that you had brought forward from previous experience? It came about the third year of me getting the company going. The same with accounting. My accounting was horrible. I was writing things on paper and paper, and I had QuickBooks, and I thought there was accounting. And then when I had an accountant looked at it, he said, thank goodness you guys aren't making any money because you'd be in big trouble with the IRS. So we had to get all that straightened out. But no, we developed over time. And about early in that, I did develop quality manual, which I wrote myself based on internet searches and put in their various quality standards and metrics that I thought pertained to our business. And when we were eventually looking at things like uh, being uh, AS90 certified or ISO certified, then we had to become serious and we wanted to supply the Department of Defense and with some of these other entities that require these quality certifications. So we brought in a quality manager and built up a quality department with inspectors and all that sort of thing. So I would say about a third year in, we got really serious about it and it grew and grew from there. Awesome. So what is your, I would say, most proud development or time in your journey and the coolest thing you've made? I always thought it was going to be the first time that I made money. I said, that's going to be the greatest thing. But I realized it wasn't that at all. It was looking, standing back and seeing a team hard at work, dedicated to solving a particular problem. And everybody had a particular task. Like you mentioned, you were at a Scott Works. And seeing everybody unified into a solution and stepping back and realize that I was the facilitator of that. And so seeing an, a well-oiled machine, you know, of, of people unified and seeing a culture, positive culture grow for that, that meant a lot to me and it continues to. And uh, I think that's what excites me most about uh, being in business and running a company. In terms of innovation, we have done so many different things. It makes me proud whenever there's a bake-off and we invariably win. But there has to be only one winner, right? Well, yeah, of the course. <laughs> so I'm going to say it's something we call the KA flat panel which we sell exclusively to the Department of Defense. And there is a number of other people who built K flat panels in competition with ours. And we would always hear, well, you know, brand X only costs this much, brand Y costs that much, and what have you. And I look at them and I said, I just don't believe that they form anywhere near, but uh, their data sheets say, and ASO is going to perform exactly as that. So somebody took it in their head, somebody in the Department of Defense, took it into the head to bring all of these antennas up to the Arctic Circle, which would be a really difficult link to the satellite, right? Because the satellite, which is geostationary and somewhere over the equator, the look angle from the Arctic Circle is roughly five degrees, right, above the uh, above horizon. So essentially pointing parallel to the ground, just over a uh, positive parallel to the ground. And so they took all these antennas up there, big names, you've heard the names, I've heard the names, and industry heard the names, and guess what? Only one of them closed the link, and that was ours. So that was a proud day for us to know, you know, it kind of put the others uh, in their place, and that led to subsequent orders and success for that product. It's a really innovative product that's, uh, we tend not to want to patent things because all it does is teach somebody else how to do it, but we had to patent this because we knew that others were going to try to jump on it. And the patent now is also forming the basis for another technology that we're working on that we believe is going to be disruptive. So I would say the KA flat panel is one of our greatest technical accomplishments. That's great. So with that, in the next three to five years, you know, what is on the horizon for MicroEnt? Well, as I needed to, this new disruptive technology. 
You know, one thing you, you always hear in the communications industry, particularly in the Department of Defense, is resiliency. They know that there's a lot of satellites up there, and if one satellite sits on the horizon, they don't want somebody sitting, waiting for it to come up again, right? You need to be able to switch between satellites, what they call satellite interoperability. So that means the antennas that are broadband, that can pick up multiple satellites, that can pick up MEOs, GEOs, LEOs, and also troposcatter, meaning not using satellites at all, and uh, have this, uh, this frequency diversity. But also, they want antennas that you don't have to point mechanically. They want them solid state, what they call the ESA, the Electronically Scanned Array or Antenna. Now, this has always been the holy grail. I would say going back 30 years, it was the holy grail. And there are some products being fielded out there now. And I say that they've done a very good job commercializing them. They look slick. They look neat. But the performance is nowhere near what you're going to get with a, a true aperture antenna. In other words, something that's steered mechanically. However... We believe that uh, what we know that we have overcome that issue and uh, we are working on that technology now. We are finding some funding for it that looks like there might be three suitors that, uh, for that technology. So we think in the next one to two years, we would develop it, have it fielded, and uh, we'll see that grow. I think we're going to see more of our land-based and sea-based uh, technologies get into our airframes especially UAVs and drones. Uh, we're beginning to see some of that now, but I think there's going to be a big step up in the innovations and requirements and the quantity that we do there. So I think changing platforms, doing more uh, airborne things, maybe some space things. So I think everything that's tech, you know, the things mostly technology-based and the company will continue to grow and uh, reap the benefits of those technologies. That's awesome. Do you think that the uh, geopolitical nature of what's going on, so we're starting, you know, the United States is pivoting more towards, you know, paying attention to China and the vastness of the problem that range brings into all of, you know, potential conflicts. Do you see that the uptick for the desirements of capabilities through antennas and what you're doing has increased or is, you know, in the increase in space or is it remaining relatively constant? This KA flat panel that I designed is being used in uh, many conflicts over, overseas. It's also used in a variety of covert areas. So to answer your question, yes, we uh, some of our in, most innovative technologies, some that are on the table, some that are being fielded, uh, due to those concerns that you speak of. I'm no expert on these things, but I am uh, a person who believes in American-made. I think that you know America will persevere in technology, you know, and in all things, but, you know, I'm a native American like you, you know, and born and bred. So I guess, of course, I'm going to be biased. But uh, I believe any kind of political discussions aside that we are still number one in technology. As long as we cut through the red tape, we, we will also per we will persevere, including in those arenas. But we can't be asleep with China. China is a giant, increasingly innovating. The other thing is they look at intellectual property differently than we do. And so that puts us perhaps at a little bit of a disadvantage, but some of the things that they do are really, really innovative. There's no question about that. Uh, so we step up our game when we need to, and uh, I expect to participate in that. Yeah, I'm sure they'd like to get their hands on the K flat pen. Probably. I can't imagine what they don't need their hands on. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. No, it's protecting our warfighters and nation's interests so that the United States can continue to thrive. So. Well, all right. Unfortunately, that's all you know. We're gonna have time to cover for today. You know, for folks that want to learn more about you, potentially your book, is there a place they can go, or would you like them to look you up? 
go to the company website, it's uh, micro-ant.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-A-N-T.com. That'll bring you to the company. And there might be some other links there. In terms of, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I also have uh, my own website for the book, but also for the company. You know, we want to have run as much traffic to the company website as possible so that we continue, you know, it's so Google doesn't forget about us. We're still up there in the searches. So uh, Charles, I don't know if it's Charles McCarrick or Charles McCarrick. I think it's charlesmccarrick.com. I beat the other one. But uh, if you search, the book is anywhere, you know, that books are sold. So um, if you bought the book and you reviewed it, I would be forever grateful and uh, would be happy to personally uh, thank whoever uh, does that. Yeah, well, that's great. I'll have to get my hands on one. No, well, thanks again, and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch and really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, all right. Take care, Charlie. Thank you for listening to another episode of DIB Innovators, brought to you by Radical. For the latest episodes, search DIB Innovators on your podcast platform of choice or visit us at Radical.com, R-A-D-I-C-L.com.